Hello and welcome. This is the Transforming Spaces podcast by Gendered Intelligence. I'm Annie. I use she or they pronouns. And I'm Frankie. I use he and him pronouns. This episode is the second highlights episode where we'll be going through the next phase of talks given at the conference in 2018, taking out some of our favourite bits and talking through what we feel about them a little bit. This episode will cover themes of sport, pregnancy, prisons and activism. And just like the last highlights episode, we will be uploading all of the episodes in full So make sure to tune in over the next few weeks and you will be able to hear all of the wonderful research and conversation going on. We're currently running a project on trans inclusion in sport. We're aiming for sport and physical activity organisations to become more knowledgeable and more confident in their ability to create and implement realistic, everyday, trans inclusive practices. Alongside this, we aim to encourage trans people themselves to take up or return to physical activity and sport and all the benefits that it can bring. So, if you are trans non-binary and you're aged 16 or over, we'd love to hear your experiences and opinions about sport and physical activity. So we have a survey open until May the 31st, 2019. So, if you're interested in doing this, we have a link on our website It's also been posted in the description for this podcast and that link is genderintelligence.co.uk slash project slash trans inclusion in sport. So we'd love to hear from you. So first up we've got Simon Croft who is the Director of Professional and Educational Services at Gender Intelligence he's going to be talking a bit about the fairness of trans inclusion in sports. With regards to trans inclusion, the Equality Act basically says trans people must be included in teams that align with our gender identity unless exclusion is necessary to ensure fairness of competition or safety. But how do we assess those things? So let's have a look at fairness. Keeping competition fair is important in all sports. But what does that actually mean? And why do we consider some attributes or advantages fair and others unfair? So there are many factors and attributes that affect someone's sporting abilities. They include someone's physicality, for example, their height, uh, their flexibility, their balance, their hand-eye coordination. It might be their age, their mental health and attitude and resilience. It might be things like the quality of coaching they receive, how long they spend training, the healthcare that's there to support them, such as physio. It can mean things like previous injuries, their sleep and nutrition um, access that they have, and also sometimes the investment in and rewards for that particular sport. So that's a really long list of things that affect that. Some of those are influenced by culture, some by funding and money, some by genetics, some by gender, and there can be a complex relationship between all of those influences. But we generally consider variations across those factors to be fair, just part of the ordinary diversity of life. So why is it so hard to recognise trans people uh, and trans experiences as being a fair part of that complex mix? So it's important to distinguish between the average capacity of people of a particular group and the overall range of capacity of individuals in that group. So we don't say, for example, that only women of average capacity can play women's basketball, we say all women can play women's basketball. And in fact, we are quite keen to find the ones that are not average, but exceptional. And so I had a little bit of a look round uh, yesterday, and there's Candace Parker from the Women's National Basketball Association in America. She's not average, she's six foot four, and she has a shoe size of 13. But she is part of that spectrum that is being celebrated in women's basketball. So, Why shouldn't we recognise trans people's attributes as falling within that wide spectrum of possibilities for their gender and therefore forming an ordinary fair part of that diverse picture? The vast majority of sport takes place in amateur, recreational and educational settings and is played by fairly ordinary people. We should be acting to maximise inclusion and minimise barriers in those settings and making sure that we think in a proportionate way about fairness can be really, really helpful and an inclusive thing to do there. I think it brings into question where's the line that you draw when you're thinking about differences in people. Mm. This is a hot topic at the moment, isn't it? With um, particularly with sport for intersex people with um, Casta Semenya. Casta Semenya, yeah, yeah. Um, 
there's lots of myths, isn't there, flying around of like this kind of somehow extreme advantage that she has with um, testosterone flying around in her body. And I was sort of thinking, actually, what what is it that which also Simon's talking about as well? What is it that makes an athlete? And I think I'm pretty sure I've got more testosterone flying around in my body, but I'm not going to be, you know, caster in a 400 meter race. There's so much more that makes an athlete. Someone is defining what an unfair level of testosterone is Mm -hmm. and putting a quantity on how unfair testosterone can be. Mm -hmm. So if they can decide that Casa Semenya should have to lower her levels of testosterone and then that therefore supposedly makes it a fair competition, can the same things be done for trans women across the board can we just say well so long as your testosterone is lowered then Mm -hmm. that means that there's a fair level of testosterone Mm -hmm. and i think too often it falls again into that we spend too much time focusing on what makes us different as opposed to what makes us the same and actually this is a women's category so therefore all women should be able to participate in this and like Simon says, there are some athletes who are like praised for these differences they have mm-hmm. for basketballers being of a certain height. Mm-hmm. I think one I think of is Michael Phelps, who's praised for this genetic difference where he's got a wider wingspan. Mm-hmm. So it means that plays into him being so good at swimming. Mm-hmm. But we don't say oh no, well, we might have said this was a men's swimming competition, but we actually meant men whose arm span is no (laughs) bigger than whatever percentage of your height. You know, it's all of these lines drawn Mm -hmm. that prevent people from competing or from even accessing sport in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because I think this argument drips down where... The way that actually plays out is on much lower levels, trans women are questioning, will I be accepted into this low-level sport academy? Will I be accepted into a yoga class? Because Mm -hmm. the views of trans people in sport are upheld by this media discussion of fairness. Mm -hmm. Yet we never hear of trans men doing well because that doesn't fit into the argument Mm -hmm. we never hear of the trans women athletes who aren't winning Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we hear so much about a trans woman winning a competition and how horrifically unfair that was Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what about all the trans people who are there and not winning you never hear anything about the average trans athlete as opposed to yeah yeah many of them So this next talk is from Jamie Hooper, who is Senior Equality and Diversity Manager at Sport England. It's difficult to ascertain generic statistics on transgender participation in sport because of the challenge of numbers. But we know from our insight and other academic um, insight that's out there, there's there's a definite need to work more specifically with transgender people to be more physically active especially throughout the transition process because we see a big drop off in that period of time. So we've directly funded a number of physical activity projects um, specific for trans people, um, including Tag Swimming Project, um, which is pretty big in London, um, and Birmingham LGBT's Activate Project, um, which had a number of trans-specific elements within it, um, both of which are pushing boundaries at the coalface of physical activity every single day. Um, And it's amazing to, to see that happening. We are really pleased to see sport mentioned in the government's LGBT action plan that was released a couple of months ago, um, which um, yeah included a section on sport, and we're working really closely with the Government Equalities Office on that area, um, as well as having just submitted um, a sector-wide response to the GRA consultation, um, which we consulted with a number of partners before that, including Gendered Intelligence as one of those. We've just heard that they're going to be getting somebody in, in the Equalities Office who's going to be leading on sport as well as a couple of other areas. So that's really exciting and a great opportunity for us to try and work with them a bit closer and, and shape what the next steps are going to look like in that area. And we're also working with a range of partners at the moment to produce, um, as Simon mentioned, a, a trans-specific inclusive facility guidance document. It does what it says on the tin. It's not as sexy and wordy as it 
as it could be. Um, but what we're trying to do is put um, some, some grassroots guidance together that will cover um, all kinds of best practice um, and give some examples, practical examples to anybody who's delivering any kind of sport or physical activity to be more inclusive for trans people. Well, I am loving the sound of this trans-inclusive facility guidance document. Mm. Yeah, this is super encouraging, isn't it? Uh, in terms of, you know, we, we've kind of gone from sort of athletes, the elite, to this is much more focusing on the everyday sort of general public, um, sport, health, well-being. And as we know, like it has an, a direct impact as well on the mental health of people, um, which is, again, an important point within the trans community. So, and I, I think a document like this will feed into, I guess, people delivering sessions, but also the actual spaces themselves and making them much more welcoming and safe to attend. It can be quite terrifying, can't it, sometimes attending, you know, going into a changing room, let alone, you know, getting to the poolside. <laughs> um, I've been to TAGS myself mm -hmm. and it's a really beautiful space that enables this safety in exercise and as you said it's so vital that these things are available not just for mental health purposes but thinking about isolation and thinking about mm. keeping fit and I know a lot of trans people have in their minds surgery or um, maybe thinking about having some medical intervention where doctors might prevent that from happening depending on weight or depending on um, their sort of physical condition and so mm -hmm. being able to access sport can be so vital for some people. Mm -hmm. Yeah and also for fun isn't it? I think I always, um, I'm not particularly sporty so I always feel like oh there's got to be a reason for me to go into this but actually um people who just they love sport and that's just part of their makeup but if there's a barrier um to stop them just literally having fun on an afternoon um that's really encouraging also i think this goes beyond the point of um i think places um groups like tags are fundamental um, and I'm really glad they're there and I'm really glad there's more of them and there does need to be more of them. But I'm also really interested in them what or actually this again, this kind of safety within our community spilling out into the mainstream. And I want to be able to go swimming, not in tags. I want to be able to feel safe amongst. Um, I always think of bodies, like bodies inhabiting these spaces. And if uh, a space is set up where you're comfortable in your body it's sort of like it removes that barrier and then you can connect with somebody else's and also this this goes you know for, for bodies that aren't trans and they have their own um, access needs or other differences that make a safer space uh, much more needed <laughs> next up we have emma franklin who is an artist performance maker and plays roller derby this part also features Emma's little boy who gives us a few little sighs and is doing a bit of colouring on the table right next to the microphone. I think he does go <laughs> at one point as well. <laughs> it's like revving up those roller engines. <laughs> um. Roller Derby is a um, sport that came out of America, so it's kind of um, has some of those idiosyncrasies of um, American sports. It's um, a set of, sometimes described as rugby on roller skates, which is slightly misleading because there's no balls involved. Um, but essentially, it's kind of like a race. It's um, also um, notable, I think, because it's one of the few sports in the world where the women's sport is the dominant sport. So it's primarily a sport played by women, and although there are men's leagues, there are mixed leagues, um, the women's sport is the primary sport. So when we have, you know, when we were to refer to the World Cup, we will be referring to the Women's World Cup as opposed to um, uh, other, yeah, other sports. Um, and also, I mean, I think it is a, it has come from a kind of point of counterculture, like it, it came from, um, 
uh, when it in its recent kind of reincarnation, it, it's come from punk roots, counterculture roots, and it continues even though now um, a lot of uh, the high level teams and a lot of people who who play it has become more of an athletic. Um, uh, sports that people play kind of more seriously perhaps um, but it still I think has a lot of radical um, things at its heart even within the, the official bodies and part of that is very strong kind of LGBT uh, inclusion very strong trans inclusion policies and um, and other things like at the World Cup uh, this year there were I think like 26 teams or something and yeah, yeah, more pictures of me looking awesome, please. Put it round again. Um, and there was there was a team uh, indigenous that was um, formed of uh, skaters from around the world who um, identified as indigenous, uh, and they came together to play together during um, the World Cup. And I think like that was a remarkable first. You can imagine that taking like what the ramifications of that happening at a global at a global sporting event, um, and I think opens the door for that sort of thing to happen at other global sporting events and other World Cups and other Olympics. Down near, near us, Eastbourne have a junior league who um, recently sent a lot of players to the Junior World Cup. Yes, thank you. Um, in, <laughs> in the States. And I think like it's great that they play mixed because you do. You have these like young um, boys playing a female sport and being you know, inspired by their female colleagues rather than the other way around. So trans inclusion in Derby, it's all, like I say, it's always been there, queer counterculture. I like the idea that there'd be a sexy guide to trans inclusion. Um, I think trans people are sexy, so, you know, we should definitely we'll try. incorporate that. Um, but the WFTDA, the Women's Flat Track Derby Association's statement is not particularly sexy, but it does exist, and it has existed for a number of years. Um, and they did release a statement a few years ago reaffirming their commitment to trans women as women within um, the sport, um, which is huge for a governing body to just come out and make that um, statement. I'm really proud of, of how our statement is because we've had a lot of, we, we've had discussions around who we are and we are a women's league. And actually that feels important to acknowledge that actually it's, it's important that we have that space, that we don't invite anybody to come and play with us. The, the, the way that the cis men's game, or the, well, the men's game, sorry, is played, is, is, is different. The, the, the nature of the sport is different. Tactically, it, it feels different. And also we want to play um, competitively, which again is sometimes where these things come down to. And as a WFTDA chartered team, we want to play for that. As a part of that is continuing to be a women's team as opposed to an all-genders team. However, what our gender policy states is that anybody may play, may skate with us if women's flat track roller derby is the kind of roller derby that you feel you need to be playing. So we don't put any um, imposition onto that. Um, and I, what I like about that, and I think is applicable maybe in, in other areas, is that it's, um, it's about opt-in rather than opt-out. What do you think about roller derby? I always reference roller derby as someone doing it right. Mm -hmm. Someone who's being very clear and open and accessible with the way that they have set up their policy mm -hmm. and also create that inclusion. And I think when you do that, I know several trans people who play roller derby. Uh -huh. And that's surely because the structure is there to just say, if this is the sport you want to play, mm -hmm. you can play it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's no crossing people off for this characteristic or for being aligned with this identity. It's mm -hmm. just like, if you know that's for you, yeah. then do it. Yeah. And I think the culture that that creates when you've got this like beautifully diverse sport where rather than thinking, who do we stop playing this sport and instead think, how do we get more people playing that sport? Mm -hmm. I think that's probably creating a really beautiful atmosphere within the roller derby sort of culture. Yeah, yeah. She she talks quite um, passionately, doesn't she, about the, the counterculture, which always reminds me of, 
I think generations, maybe I wish I lived in more like, you know, the punk culture and this idea of, again, it was very much about do it yourself. And you've got this kind of, you know, again, away from the mainstream, this kind of subculture of we're going to play it the way we want to play it and we're going to and and even the identification as well it made, it was interesting comparing that to perhaps um the well but basically like you know federations of like what what qualifies to be a woman when we were talking a bit earlier about kind of levels of testosterone and things like this and and here you've actually got a sport where um if you identify on this you know then yes you can take part in this flat track kind of roller derby race um yeah I'd, I'd be interested to hear a bit more um and it's great in terms of diversity around gender but i was like you i, I was thinking if i was going to do a sport that would be first on my list for it for the very nature actually of its culture but i have a disability and i have actually i have osteoporosis and if i'm to fall over then it's a 90% chance, you know, I'm going to break something. And, and I'd be, you know, I wonder if there is sort of a disabled roller derby or there's another way mm. to kind of, you know, make this more accessible mm. um, for, yeah. Mm. That would be so punk. That would be cool. That would be so punk. Mm. <laughs> Female role models as well. It's, you know, regardless of the fact that it's now, it's a sport for anybody, all genders, uh, non-binary. Um, but it also goes against, uh, which has been quite historically the culture of sport, hasn't it? A more sort of patriarchy of sport. And you've now got these young boys looking up and having female role models is really exciting. Yeah, I think it opens up possibilities when you follow that model, because I think how they've set that up is quite in line with how a lot of trans people would talk about how gender exists for them. There is this identification and something that if you know within yourself to opt into a certain identity label, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then that's how that works. Mm -hmm. So to just have guidelines that are already following that idea of if you identify with then you can do this yeah 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 it's all about yes 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 isn't it next we've got a talk from francis ray white and dr ruth pierce who together have presented their research on trans pregnancy we're all familiar with uh, thomas Beatty, the quote-unquote world's first pregnant man um, and i think this is the the first kind of hurdle that we're coming across in terms of um, uh, the kind of perception of trans pregnancy as something that is continually sort of new and novel um, and it's not to deny the kind of significance of BT and his sort of publicness um, in doing this um, but that it sets up a particular kind of way in which um, uh, trans pregnancy has kind of been thought of. Moving on from BT of course we've had our own um, first pregnant men uh, in many other countries, such as here in the United Kingdom. So here is a story from last year, uh, proudly showing off his baby bump. The first British man to be pregnant, says the Daily Mail. 2017, this is the same Daily Mail that in 2012 also announced uh, the first pregnant man in Britain. So you can kind of see this reoccurring theme, right? There's this obsession with newness, and that's the thing about Thomas Beatty, this idea of the first. And we'll be used to this in this room, I'm fairly certain. The first trans... What is it, the first trans? Well, we're always the first. We're always unique. We're always special. We're always unusual. We're always strange. And with the, with the kind of trans pregnancy narrative, it's quite interesting because BT, of course, wasn't the first. And there were plenty of us um, saying that in 2008. But it wasn't just that he wasn't the first man to become pregnant. He also wasn't the first to receive media attention. Um, here's a picture of um, Matt Rice, for instance, with um, his partner at the time, uh, Pat Califia, um, with their child. And that was an article in The Village Voice in 2000. Um, and of course, trans people have been having children for as long as trans people have existed, which is, of course, forever. But what's interesting is how the story gets told. 
Um, so this idea that we've been using to, to get hold of this is this thing that CN Lester talks about, um, which is cultural amnesia. And uh, Meg John Barker talked about this earlier this morning, this idea of forgetting things and consequently the shock of the new. And the new is always shocking. Trans is always shocking because there's this forgetting of our existence and what we are. The reaction to Christine Jorgensen, who of course wasn't the first woman to transition, but was the first one to have major media reporting, according to Susan Straker, uh, Jorgensen attracted more headlines than the invention of the polio vaccine in the same year, um, or the Korean War. So, you know, there's a lot of attention, novelty, excitement, and yet you see that repeated as if it never happened um, when Caitlyn Jenner came out. And it's the way that it constructs trans as new, right? Trans as news makes us new all the time. And it's a really poor basis for healthcare policy. We reviewed various relevant policies, laws, other kinds of health guidelines. Um, and what they suggest is that while there are in the UK no legal barriers to trans male or trans masculine or non-binary pregnancy or reproduction, there is a complete lack of acknowledgement of it. Although you can have the uh, the equipment on site to get pregnant. Um, there's no way in kind of law or policy for that person to be subsequently recognised as anything other than the mother of a child. Um, and those people will find themselves consistently assumed to be female or a, a woman um, in all the kind of legal and policy uh, documentation. The, the Gender Recognition Act, as is, um, states that when a gender recognition certificate is issued, then the person's gender becomes, for all purposes, the acquired gender, which is fine. Um, but if a trans man has a baby under the Birth, Death and Recogni uh, Registration Act, 1953, um, he must be recorded as the mother uh, on the birth certificate. And not only does this mean that we do not have a record of how many men might have given birth, um, in the UK, but it also suggests that somebody is perhaps not able to be a man for all purposes, um, thus giving that person quite an inconsistent mix of male and female kind of legal um, statuses. So obviously too, the Gender Recognition Act does not recognise non-binary people, um, so there's currently no way to legally recognise um, those people in the registration of the birth of their children. Something that those who had been on testosterone talked about a lot, and one research participant referred to as the biggest lie, is the idea that trans people are infertile after going on hormones. This isn't true for trans masculine people on testosterone or trans feminine people on estrogen necessarily. We do know that we don't know exactly what impact they have. You are very, very unlikely after being on estrogen for a long time to be able to produce sperm that will, um, you know, help conceive. However, if you come off estrogen, it can sometimes be a possibility. Similarly with testosterone. Testosterone is not a contraception. Um, something that a number of people who talk to who work in STI clinics have told us is a bit of a problem for people who come in and realise they're pregnant, not realising that they could still get pregnant. But this sense that you can become infertile on hormones doesn't just perpetuate within trans spaces. People sometimes get the impression from gender clinics. This is actually really quite shocking, isn't it? Again, it's about um, erasure, erasure of um, trans history. I actually got really emotional thinking about families and you've, you've the fact that, you know, you have a, a, a child, you have a baby, and you've got somebody else deciding whether you're, you know, the mother or the father, or deciding actually you're not the father over you, the, the parent, and also over the child. Um, and that's, that just feels, well, it's, yeah, massively immoral. I don't really know what to say about it. Um, this is really brought up in the coming out of the archive talk by E.J. Scott, um, who says around how we need to grab onto those moments where we can make a clear history, make a clear 
story that we follow because if we don't the moment passes and the progress hasn't happened there hasn't been a change and i think that's mm. what they really get into in this talk um that so long as there isn't this continuing theme that trans people have families then there's never the basis in a wider understanding mm. for progress to happen mm. there's never a reason to question how many trans men are giving birth in the mm. uk if it's a radical out there situation that mm. you hear in the daily mail yeah, yeah it gives it suddenly gives them much easier license doesn't it to always announce the first the first because it's mm. never been documented in history so i think as there's an increase in people being able to talk about it in a non-sensationalized mm. way that's where we can allow the structure to be made that's where we can start criticizing the way that parents are recorded or the failure of the equality acts to cover things like a right to identity as a parent mm -hmm. and i think a really important point as well is that we are often fed an assumption as a truth mm. particularly thinking about GICs how so many of us will have gone through the GIC and we have all been given this advice as a truth mm. as a truth that mm. there's no such thing as transparenting and that doesn't happen even though we know within our community that these things do mm. happen mm. but we're still told once you've made this decision to transition medically yeah, yeah. then these are the things you're giving up these are the things that you won't have and that's so damaging to ourselves the, to be told that's that's yeah. reality and not up for question mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's also a lot of again i think within the culture of of, of people if you like criticizing um, trans lives and trans culture and, and questioning them in a sort of negative ways uh, and it goes back to the headlines as well there's these ideas are very extreme and very final um, you're you know you take this hormone and you're never going to be able to have children again this is you know and the headlines will run away with that and you're making our children infertile and there is no truth in this but it's a very dangerous tool to be feeding the wider population because you know and and how many of us will cross-reference that unless it genuinely also affects our lives i think quite rightly they mentioned that because we are fed this mm -hmm. assumption as truth that there are people thinking that they are not fertile and then end up having children because of it mm, mm, children mm, mm, which mm, they're mm. then not allowed to then be the father of um, so next speaking is Michelle Brewer and she's a barrister. But the biggest issue is, is if you do not have the appetite from on high, if you do not have the appetite from the governors to create a cultural shift and to protect the dignity of all the prisoners that are held in that estate, if you do not have that, irrespective of how beautiful this policy is, and I have to say it's a bloody good policy, no matter how powerful you, you put the dicta down in that policy, it will be breached and money will be spent on instructing me to go to the High Court saying, why have you screwed up on the policy again? You had the policy, you didn't apply it. I, I think we really need to recognise and, and grapple, and the MLJ does need to grapple with that there needs to be a culture shift, and there needs to be money where there is no money. And we need to recognise that the prison service is on its knees. Not just for trans prisoners, for everyone. It is on its knees. It is paralysed. But what that means is the most vulnerable in prison, women, women with mental health issues, members of the trans community, the youth, are going to be the most at risk. If I'm reading a review board minute, which I have done, and they're misgendering my clients, and yet they're supposed to be making the decision on transferring, where do you start with that? Where do you start with that? 
All of those things require intense training in a resource-strapped environment. A resource-strapped environment where the inspectors come out and said, these, none of these spaces are safe for anyone. Well, that was all very alarming. I think the most poignant thing I felt from listening to her speak was dignity, the dignity of people in prisons and training as well. And actually, I mean, I, I agree with her strongly. I don't have sort of much personal experience of uh, working in prisons, living in prisons, but I think there's um, a comparison that can be made with you know, acute hospitals for mental health um, inpatient environments and they're up against the same dilemmas. And I feel very strongly, actually, it goes beyond training because I know there are, you know, sometimes with training models, it can fall into a tick box and it's all very well having um, nurses or prison wards, guards, whatever, going along to training. But I think another issue is it falls back on to actually um and and they will they will have it in their own sort of uh, contracts as well duty of care and i think if somebody can't be in those environments and have um and be able to look after those people particularly you know everybody in prison is going to be a vulnerable person so their needs their care needs are a lot higher uh, and if somebody working with them cannot you know deliver you know their duty of care then they should not be in that job um, and that needs to be really looked into because as she's describing um, very passionately it's this if this system is on its knees um, this is something that needs change now. She talks a little bit further about this in the full talk but what comes across to me is the failings that can happen to a person when just one person is not on board or there's been a culture created by a few people with a lot of power that prevents change from being made, that prevents people from getting what they should have, what they have the right to have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a human right issue, isn't it? in terms of somebody's human right to be who they are, present who they are and be treated as who they are. And I can really hear her or really feel her explaining that this is a system that is failing a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And where do you start? Where do you start when such quantities of people from all different elements of society are also being failed mm. and again it's another very very acute environment of you know the failings that are happening within the system are actually failings that are happening on a society level um and it's almost like he, here's a spotlight on it and and rather than you know so we've got a spotlight on it to kind of do something about it then you'd hope i mean you, you know you, you can then take a more I was going to say radical step but it's not even radical it's again very moral like the organization like um, Bent Bars um, which is also very much about the abolition of, of prisons in fact and looking at other methods other ways to work with people within the community um, rather than this segregation all the time again it's that um, looking at difference and pointing out otherness as opposed to what do we have in common, our, our commonality? Um, we're no different. Um, and it's a lot about judgment and who who is anybody to kind of judge anyone else. Um, and it's this question that's being put on whether an institute decides to think about how do we support someone or whether they're thinking, do we support someone at all? Mm-hmm. It almost kind of wraps itself up in a level of if, if you're dealing with, a, I don't know, a prison system which is delivering a punishment of some kind, but then that's where you're crossing over into to the human rights of, you know, somebody's identity has nothing to do with a crime, 
has, you know, and this is something that needs to be dealt with on a completely different level. Well, funny you bring up Bent Bars, because we're now going to hear from Chrissy Hunter, who is from the Bent Bars Collective. Uh The Bent Bars Project is a letter-writing or pen pal project for lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and queer plus prisoners in Britain. We were founded in 2009 responding to a clear need to develop stronger connections and build solidarity between LGBTQ plus communities inside and outside prison walls. Um, we're in weekly contact with LGBTQ plus people in prisons through letters and have a direct and realistic understanding of many of the problems they face, not filtered through third party interpretation, although sometimes censored. The Bent Bars Project understands from direct interaction with incarcerated people that prison is sometimes the first time that they have felt able to confront their own feelings of dysphoria and maybe the first time that they have felt able to come out to themselves, let alone to others. So we have an idea of a trans prisoner, but trans prisoners come in many, many different shapes and many different sizes. We receive letters from people who tell us how they feel about themselves who feel they can't tell anyone else in their immediate environments in prison. We also know that trans people regularly have difficulty getting the treatments they're entitled to under the prison uh, service instruction of the care and management of transgender offenders, despite the regulations being supposed to guarantee their rights. The regulations which govern the treatment of trans prisoners referred to above were reviewed and came into force at the beginning of last year, and there are changes that amongst other things discuss non-binary prisoners for the first time. Um, I focus here on a section that tells us that allocation of prisoners to the appropriate estate should be based on a more flexible approach to location within parts of the prison or approved premises, which will be applied to transgender offenders who can demonstrate consistent evidence of living with the gender they identify with. Trans and non-binary people are judged by standards that aren't our own. Other non-trans, binary-identified people set the standards that we have to achieve. While trans people were involved in helping draft these new regulations, their interpretation and implementation falls mainly on people who are not members of our communities, working within a structurally and endemically transphobic heteronormative system. This disadvantages and devalues claims made by trans and non-binary prisoners about their own self-understandings and therefore the access they're allowed to the provisions made for them within the regulations. Claims about transness in the criminal justice system are inevitably refracted through a white Western lens. This disadvantages people whose sense of sex gendered self is informed by their non-Western or non-white cultural backgrounds. The issue of trans prisoners is also one in which people are often reduced from being considered as socially, culturally complex individuals to mere ciphers of transness. Ben Bar's project argues that the criminal justice system is a space which intensifies rather than reduces the potential for violence. As year-on-year -year statistics demonstrate, UK prisons are increasingly dangerous places for the incarcerated and especially for the most vulnerable. Any examination of the demographics of incarcerated people in the UK will draw the inevitable conclusion that the system is racist, takes no account of people's mental health disadvantages or special educational needs, is extremely classist, incarcerates people with special needs arising from their reliance on alcohol or narcotics, and incarcerates a huge number of people of all sex genders who represent no physical danger to people at all. And underlying all of this is the troubling question of a fundamental societal lack of agreement and therefore a clear thinking about the very meaning of justice. To be quite clear, we believe that this impacts victims at least as much as perpetrators, but until we invest far more time, energy, intellect and resources in communitarian solutions to antisocial and violent behaviour, we will never break the cycles of violence and dysfunction which propel people into a relentless entrapment in the criminal justice system. As a first step, as a society, we need to move to a place of care, re-erect a social safety net that works, and re-educate ourselves to understand 
that people who feel valued and cared for have a greater chance of flourishing in the world. I actually went to um, the Bent Bar's 10-year anniversary this year. I mean, yeah, it was. The, I was. I learned a lot. One of I think the most profound moments that stuck out was, and Chrissy talks about it here in terms of the obstructions if you're trans and you want to receive any treatment and your journey around uh, your 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 journey length of journey um, particularly um, is vastly different from somebody who's who's not in prison. Um, I remember specifically listening to somebody, they were they were a pen pal and they were communicating and they described how they'd been a pen pal with somebody for nine years. And when they met, they were both at the beginning of their medical transition. And within nine years, um, the person who was uh, the pen pal outside of prison um, had, for them, completed their medical transition they they were gender clinic free and were you know living their life and the person that they are writing with inside prison um nine years on have received their second appointment or something and so the disparity between was was very very um just made very obvious and very real in that kind of small anecdote and that's just one anecdote of many it feels slightly like that is weaponized the way prisons are at the moment have this as you said a real interest in punishment and that Mm -hmm. all feels part of the same package that it feels like the system is saying to be trans and to break a crime or to break the law that was crossing the line and mm-hmm. you now have no rights as a trans person. Mm-hmm. We're going to take away, you know, everything. We'll take away your freedom, but also your freedom within yourself as well. And I think um, maybe this is um, my personal view again, but um, I think I believe there's something at play around power as well. And you would have, you know, that power dynamic of you know, giving somebody the key, you know, to open the door, to be free, literally. Um, I I really liked what Bent Bar stands for, what uh, Chrissy was talking about and what Bent Bar stands for as well. And I had an image at the end, you know, hopefully on a sort of maybe more positive note, this idea of we're going back to some very, I don't understand how we've forgotten these 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 basic instincts as a society and it goes back again to care. And if you care and look after people, they will flourish. I think there are very, very, very few people in in our world who wouldn't. And communication as well. Communication is a very, uh, a huge barrier when you're incarcerated um, for any reason in terms of it's very, the divides between them and us, the divide between you inside and trying to access treatment outside. These GIC clinics are not within the walls of prisons these GIC clinics are somewhere else and so that communication that you have to go through not even directly you have to go through whoever the you know people within prison first and you have to then pass on you have to really trust pass on and give over your trust that those letters and those referrals are going to make it and then you're also told and told the truth in return and that can also make the process I mean you know we all know as trans people who are in a queue you know, these GIC clinics are what, two and a half years waiting list at the moment. And you can imagine having those other, uh, literally, bars in the way to kind of access that. It's also terrifying, you know, being in a place like that, you know, you know, again, we've had other talks around, you know, being safe on the streets, sort of literally. But if you're living in an environment, you know, we don't, you know, if you're living in an environment where, you know, these institutions are run by people who are, are meant to be taking care of you but if the very nature of those people running them as she brought up you know there's you know if they're racist if they're transphobic if they're you know have any sort of prejudice towards you as uh, an offender then you're also going to be absolutely terrified to be yourself you know you know you can actually 
put your own life at risk. In fact, mm. it's it's that serious. I think what she says that's quite important to hear as well is it's not just about changing the training for a prison. It's not just about uh, developing a different ethos. It's about a whole structural change that comes alongside this. And while you can give that one-on-one support to people, mm-hmm. that's not defeating the beast that is this failing system that is mm. the whole overarching issue and without that change mm-hmm. you're only supporting select few individuals mm-hmm. and also those select few few individuals that that can ask and can fight for their needs right. within prison because you've got an awful lot of vulnerable people who will not be heard simply because they don't have the capacity to reach out and say that and be heard and you know everything's stretched the services are so stretched that they're literally going to get missed because you know time is taken with a louder voice for instance now we're going to hear from nim ralph who is a community activist freelance writer trainer and facilitator for me times campaigning is survival and survival is campaigning. I don't know how to separate those two things from each other. And I can't, I can't separate me from the work, and I can't separate my body from the work. And fundamentally, that's because I can't separate my humanity from the work. Because whether we're talking about toilets, whether we're talking about the Houses of Parliament, whether we're talking about birth certificates, what we're talking about is my humanity. And I don't know how to separate those things out. And that's because the threat to my body and my humanity is everywhere. It is walking down the street and the potential for violence. It is in toilets. It is barriers, both social and literal, to healthcare, whether it's to do with me being trans or not to do with me being trans. It's policies that affect me and my friends, like sex work criminalisation. It's from friends and from family. It's from intimate relationships, and it's at borders, especially as a trans person of colour. Twice this year I've had random crop churches, specific crop churches at borders. And while transitioning through borders is a space of policing, there are no borders to the policing of my body. And that happens wherever I go. We're a small population and we rarely have access to influential spaces. Although I'm glad that we do have some and we have people inside. So we need, there are lots of things that we need around us. This, this isn't just trans people's fight, right? We need people to help take doors off for us. We need people to invite us in and center our voices. And we need people to recognize our contributions. And that last point to me is particularly important. Because I see my trans friends and family across movements with their arms rolled up doing the work, not least in the feminist movement, with that work being invisibilized. And so if we aren't at the table, we're on the menu. But getting to the table isn't only about the doors, it's about the conditions that get us there. It's about if and how we're invited, it's about if and how we're welcome, and also if we compete. And we all need to create the social conditions for that to all be possible. So campaigning isn't just the thing that we pick up and that people share because they're virtue signaling that they're on board. It's the things that we're doing all the time to create the conditions for things like the GRA amendments to go through. I think what Nim says really rings true to me. Um, and I'm sure there are things that you can really relate to about doing work in something that is so personal. Uh, I think from my perspective of doing youth work and of trying to work with uh, cis people to develop understandings of trans people, you put so much of yourself into that work that, oh my God, when someone comes along and takes some of that work off you and you don't have to be doing the work to make sure that is done right, Mm. that could make so many things in life so much easier. You know, this is good allyship that we're talking about here, I think. This is Mm -hmm. people understanding that not all of someone's battles have to be put on the ones, have to be put on them because it is their battle. And there are ways that we can share this around, you know, even as marginalised people, there are ways that we can take on someone else's battle to share that way out just as someone else would do for us yeah there is no separation is there and you know fundamentally this is great you know because we're all working towards um 
working ourselves out of a job, <laughs> hopefully. And I like how they were bringing everything back to it's a nice kind of conclusion, if you like, from, you know, we've both sat here and listened to these talks and, and some of them have actually had uh, a very, you know, a very strong impact. Um, and I'm going to go away and it's going to, you know, I'm going to carry this with me. I'm going to carry, I can't separate that either. I can't separate these experiences because they touch me in, in a way that either through direct lived experience or through people I love, people I care about. Yeah, also these, um, they're, they're bringing things around to these activism and it makes me think as well about day-to-day -day living and these very small, minute kind of moments of activism that we have. Um, literally, you know, I think, you know, going back to living in prison, living and surviving each day, uh, still being here is an act of activism. It's an act of defiance. Mm. Just existing and making changes through that existence that mm. continues this activism after we've closed the youth group, after we've finished a training session. Mm -hmm. Those effects still continue on afterwards and those effects still continue on through us, but likewise that existence, that defiance, exists on through other people. Mm. It spreads out. Yeah, because the whole world is involved, aren't they? You've got um, the people making decisions around prison environments, hospital environments, whatever. It's not just trans people. So this job is all of ours. I think there's also an activism in me that that has hope that that's, that will be our truth. That will be what happens. So up next, we've got Charlie Craigs, who runs the project Nail Transphobia. Public free manicures for the chance to sit down and have a chat with a trans person. So while I'm doing their nails, they can kind of ask me whatever they want, even if it's the wrong question, because I can teach them the wrong question <laughs> in a nice way. But um, yeah, and it's just a chance for people to sit down and have a chat with a trans person and for me to try and humanize the issue for them. It's not about normalizing things, it's about humanizing things. I think that's kind of what we've all touched on is about making things personal. We've, everyone said something about making things personal, and I think that's what I try and do with my activism. So I call what I do fabulous activism, but it's also very just like personal activism. It's kind of like, because often existing is activism when you're a trans person. So like it's about showing people that kind of humanity. So I was just having these conversations and helping people who maybe were from communities like my family or my friends or whatever understand who I was and my humanity and like kind of almost like winning them over just by not even doing anything just by talking because literally I wasn't faking anything I was literally just explaining and being myself and they would just be like oh like I get it it's like really normal there's not much to understand and I think that's the, the kind of the crux of the issue is that it's really there's really not much to understand with trans stuff I think people need that human conversation sometimes to understand it like they can read about it but it's when you have a chat with someone from that community that you really understand it and it's about making it personal like Helen said that's kind of the what I do is all about making it personal and like when they ask me questions I can tell them about when I was attacked or I can tell them about my childhood and being four and knowing or I can tell them about whatever like and it just it, that personal element is what transforms people from into allies because people almost need like empathy I guess to be an ally like it, you can be sympathetic towards the cause but to be an active ally you have to like be emotionally invested I think and unless you're affected by an issue personally yourself you're probably not gonna take it upon yourself to be an active like oh let me like sign the GRA like and it's just it's a long form like you're probably not gonna do it unless you really care so you need to win people over so what I do is really about changing hearts and minds I think there's so much value in what Charlie's saying here. She's really helped me think of this approach of winning over hearts. And, you know, when we look at things like the Channel 4 gender debate, which put to question whether trans people should be allowed to exist, trying to force through um, a perspective to people doesn't always work. But when you connect with people's humanity and when you uh, show people that we are more similar than we are different and that those common themes that run across us are what keep this, keep us together as a society, I think that's got such richness in thinking how to create allies, how to keep people 
fighting for their cause. And I think eventually, as we touch people in our lives as trans people, there is more, we find there are more allies because it, there's that's their friend that they're fighting for. That's their partner. That's their brother. That's their sister. And going back to what Nim said, when we've got those allies, that can take the work off us. That means we've got people fighting our corner without us having to go through all the emotional labor, go through sometimes the really difficult parts. You've been listening to the Transforming Spaces podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you want to continue this conversation or you have any points to add, we'd be really interested to hear your views. Um, so do please tweet us at... At Gender Intel. <laughs> you can listen to our podcast on anchor.fm slash genintel. Or you can find it on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Radio Public and many more podcast apps. Our first five full episodes have now been published and we'll continue to do that with anything shown in the highlight reels. If you'd like to support us or find out any more information about us, you can go to the website at genderedintelligence.co.uk and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you are listening to us so you can be filled in with our next episode so make sure to tune into the next one